Here's a place where all of us can be safe. Our stories of transformation can be safe, and all the things we want to research are safe here. This is Safe Space with Cheyenne. I'm really excited you're here, and I hope you stick around for a while, because I've got a lot to show you before I leave Earth. I love you guys. Joining me in Shineland Studios today is Gareth Evans from Remaster Your Mind. He is coming from, well, you're going to tell us where you're located in England. That'll work better for us. But um, he's coming on today to speak to us about PTSD and trauma therapy. I am going to let him get into it. Hopefully, hopefully he'll let me speak. We've been speaking for about 30 minutes now and finally realized we both have the gift of gab. So, Gareth, thank you for coming on today and educating us on your program and this wonderful book that I'm about to go through later, too. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, first time, for allowing me to come on here. Um, and you're talking a second ago about how long we've been having a talk before we pressed the record button, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Um, as I, uh, well, as you said, that um, I'm from England originally, from Hereford, which is very close to the Welsh border, um, and currently I'm back and forth living in Colchester with my wife, um, which is north uh, west, sorry, northeast of uh, of, of London. I appreciate you telling me that because when we first got on the phone, you thought I was in Texas. So, and you can still think I'm in Texas. That is totally fine. I'm sure it's a little warmer there, but um, we're both very candid on the fact that we're like, I think it's really cool where you are, but I've never been there. (laughs) So I have no visual in my mind of how to explain. I can tell you, I looked up a map when I got off the phone with you the first time because I just wanted to have a visual of like where you were and especially when we were talking about when you were growing up what it looked like literally living in a border town it was it do you know the movie the greasers like the kids it's like the kids on the wrong side of the tracks like that's what it reminded me of like you're just some some english little bad boy on the wrong side of the tracks just trying to be a good boy one day (laughs) yeah that's that's very accurate to be honest yeah (laughs) just look at my hometown, the, um, the, the pictures are very quaint, to be honest, although it's got, um, doesn't show much of what's going on in the background. If you used to have a Google, uh, Hereford or Lempster, originally where I'm from. Wow. Yeah, I've never visited anything like where you're from at all. I've honestly only seen, you know, movies on TV of depictions of what it might look like. Um, but... I mean, I guess if we're going to start anywhere, that would probably be the best place to start is like what your upbringing was like and what really got you in the military in the first place. Um, well, when, when I look at my family when, when I, and uh, my, my, literally my local area, you, you, are a, um, you are a product of your environment as much as you are a product of your family. Um, my parents, when I was growing up, well, my mom would ruled the house with an iron fist. Uh, my dad's was uh, was very immobile. He was uh, he was disabled. Um, and when I went to school, uh, the school that as I said, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. So now my hometown is a um, is the crossing point to the drug trafficking trafficking between England and Wales. Now, if you know much about um, English geography, there's uh, there's a lot of drugs happening in Birmingham and Wolverhampton, and all those drugs travel through. Lempster before they go anywhere and distributing all over Wales, uh, and that in itself breeds violence and um, 
don't want to say gang warfare, but there's a lot of lot of people wanting to fight one another, um, and it also creates a reputation. Now, there were, there was lots of dotted towns and villages around my area, where um, where we would go across to there just to show masculinity and, and, and fight them as much as they would come to our town and get drunk in our bars and talk to our girls and and, and want to uh, fight us or just antagonising however that looked. So when I was growing up, um, drugs was very rife. There was three drug dealers on my street, and my brother was one of them. Uh, I remember one stage, I'm sure my brother won't mind me talking about it now because it's, it is in the past, but my dad used to hide his wallet under his pillow with fear of my brother stealing money from that wallet before uh, he was to buy his own the next score of drugs or whatever that looked like. Um, so when I was growing up, there was lots of violence, there was drugs always in the background, and um, there, there was always people wanting to, to put you down, so you learned very quickly to fight or flight, um, which we'll talk about more in a, in a little while, as there's other little bits and pieces that adds on to uh, the, the fight and flight. Um, but I learned from a young age to, to fight, stand my ground, um, because it was frowned upon if I was with uh, my friends and uh, and they was to be fighting, and someone was to run, and they would stop becoming your friend, your friend very quickly. So um, I've got a number of siblings, um, and as we went through life, we all turned to one thing or another. So uh, my brother was, uh, as I said, was, uh, turned to the drugs, where he was a, a dealer for one of the big names of the local area. Uh, my other brother went to uh, alcohol, um, and I joined the military. I've got other siblings there. Um, but I focused on joining the army. Um, I joined the army for a number of reasons. My eldest brother was a soldier. So when I was growing up, sort of had awe in my eyes for him because he was very masculine. Again, he was going on holidays everywhere. He was going to Barbados with his wife. Uh, and it was, he was showing me a life that I, I wanted. And I liked the freedom. Um, and also, the reason why I joined the army was I generally wanted to take that step further. I've been in many fights. I've been, uh, I, I wanted to end someone's life legally without getting into trouble myself. Um, and the best thing to do that was to serve queen and country. Well, back then it's queen and country, uh, and now it's going to be a, a, the king as such. So, yeah, uh, my upbringing. I was, um, I was actually studying art uh, and religion education, and um, I got quite involved in my art pieces. My, my teacher was my favourite teacher um, and he really encouraged me to, to bring out lots of the artistic side of myself. It wasn't until I was 17 that I, I decided to make that leap and, and join the army. So you went from arts and religion to the army really quick. I do not remember that in our original interview. So even me, I'm like, that's a hell of a turn. Yeah. That's well, a hell of a dark turn too. No, I would say that there wasn't a turn at all. There, there were, it was very level playing field. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had my one hand, I was, I was drawing and I was painting. Another hand, I was very intrigued of the, the Black Death, of, the, the, um, of, of all the different religions and holy wars and everything else. But at the same time, I was also dealing with friends who would go around to the house and they would either want to fight someone or want to smoke something. Mm -hmm. So... Although it may appear there's going to be a very direct angle, it was very similar. I mean, in 
everywhere you looked at it, it was just a blended lifestyle. One person would look at it and say it's um, very soft and bubbly. The other person would look at it and say it's very sharp and edgy. So then how did this experience in the Army shape not necessarily who you are today, but that person that you were coming into? Um, when you join the Army, uh, the Army makes you uh, or creates a soldier out of you. So you're, you're taught to be stoic. And what I mean by, by the, the listeners that don't really understand fully what stoic means um, is to be emotionless. So if you are with your, your mates, your comrades, your soldiers, or your brethren, however that looks, and you get into a fight, you can't try and placate it. You can't calm that fight down, especially if you're on the battlefield. You need to fight to the finish. You need to exploit the enemy. There's no time to give one another a hug and say, are you okay? How's that grazed knee? You need to tell them to man up and push out and fight the enemy that is fighting you. So in basic training, the very, very beginning of your army career you are taught to stop being a civilian lose the emotion become stoic and be aggressive when it needs to be and i'm not talking here about the um, the tooth arms the, the the saber squadrons the saber regiments not so much the logistics the uh, the, the catering or the the male side of the army because there is a bit of a difference there. But if you look at if you look at the british army when you have the the, the paratroopers uh, mixed in with the tank transporters. They're two very different jobs and there's two very different outcomes. One outcomes the paratroopers need to be uh, very aggressive where the um, the tank transporters need to be a little bit more savvy of how to engage uh, a vehicle onto another vehicle. How many tours did you do? You were back and forth quite a few times, weren't you? Yeah, well, um, in the British Army you do six-month tours, uh, whereas I know that in America that you do a year tour. Um, so I've, I've been to Iraq three, four times, four times, uh, and I went to Afghanistan twice. And this uh, was over a 20 year period, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, the, the first 15 years I was in something called the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, which was my, uh, tooth arm regiment, the, um, Scotland's only cavalry that, uh, we, although we have horses, we go to, to war in tanks. Um, now the. The, the remaining five years of my army career was in the Army Welfare Service, where I realised that I had a problem and I needed to solve that problem. And that was to help the other people. And I realised I had a, a good knack for it. So my 20 years uh, was 15 years in the one and five years in the other before I came out and I started my business. So those five years were, I don't want to say the most transformational, but they obviously like shed some light on why you went through the last 15 to show you who you are today? Because that's when you did a lot of the like neuroscience. Um, we talked about the hypnotherapist that you worked under. Like that five years working with that, is that where you got the brunt of your knowledge from? Um, excluding the hypnotherapy, yes. Um, I knew just before I left the, 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 my frontline regiments, I worked in basic training where I was teaching recruits how to become soldiers, uh, teaching them about first aid or chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear warfare or karma concealment, survive um, uh, and uh, extract. And it was during that time there when um, my regiment was calling me back and saying, look, we need to go to the next tour. 
uh, I've had that realization that I needed to break away from it. And I wasn't in the best place. And I actually read a book called The Chimp Paradox by Professor Stephen Peters. Um, and that really got me excited to learn more about my subconscious to, and my conscious to understand that it's not just face value. So when I transferred over to the Army Welfare Service, those five years really did give me the building blocks of um, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, neuroscience, uh, all these different uh, lectures, um, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, they, they, were, they were all showing me how to help other people in a very professional capacity. Um, and I had lots of experience with coaching and mentoring. So that kind of um, made its own sphere of the direction I was going to. It wasn't until I left the Army Welfare Service, left the Army entirely, that my wife um, uh, presented me with rapid transformational therapy, the, the hypnotherapy as, as we look at it. And I, I, um, I very quickly identified that not so much a gap in the market, but a gap in my headspace. And I needed to fix what was going on inside. I was using the Army Welfare Service to help other people, but I was really masking my problems. Uh, and it wasn't until I had to... I had to do my own soul searching, my own pilgrimage as such, although there was nowhere to go apart from home. Um, and I, I managed to, to almost put the, the pieces of the puzzle together to identify what PTSD is, what CPTSD is, and, and sort of bind them together and figure out a solution because I tried the way the army was giving me to, to overcome PTSD, but there was nothing... As, no, I don't want to say tangible. There's nothing tangible about it. When you're going through problems, you need to understand what the problem is before you can get over it. And my journey that I took, I realised that there was many people that was asking for this same journey, but not aware of how to how to ask for it. So, um, just talking about all the building blocks, all my life experiences. Um, and understanding truly what anxiety is, truly what depression is. Uh, when you sat there and thinking, do you know what, I, I would just wish, um, I would be driving my car and overtake me. And as, I, as I'm being overtaken, uh, I'll be like, oh, I'm worthless. I just want to kill myself. Um, it's, just, it's just a bad place. And that dark place, I, I was aware of not only what it looks like, but how it feels. So when I talk with people that's got in a very similar headspace, I can massively relate and say, look, you're not alone in this. You are not alone. In fact, I have been there. I've got the T-shirt. And in fact, uh, I'll send you the T-shirt. You can wear it if you don't want that. I wear it with pride because you shouldn't, shouldn't hide away from your mental health. In fact, it should always be on the forefront. And I think, in all honesty, that's what um, you guys over in the States really do well, is, uh, is self-help. Over here in the, in the UK, it's um, it's something to be hidden away from. There's so much stigma hiding behind mental health. I don't know specific how bad it is or how good it is over there. I just know that there's a lot of self-help over in America, and, I, and it's an eye-opener, and it feels really good to see that people are getting it. Um, I'm just excited, perhaps, for people to see my method because I've, I, I enjoy... Uh, I take pleasure in life by seeing people have that aha moment, and that, that light bulb moment, say... This is working. This is and the transformation. I can sit back and I can smile from ear to ear mm -hmm. all day long when I see people um, truly getting 
better towards themselves. Watching people being released from their own suffering and even having the awareness that what they're changing, they're choosing, has been um, a very powerful thing for me to observe as well. Um, what you said previously about um, us having our self-help, I don't know when there was a turn from stigmatism to rah-rah mental health. Um, it, I feel like it just it's happened along with everything else that's going over. So I think it's really cool for you to observe from the UK. You're like, hey, you guys are really doing good over there with mental health. Because growing up, it was a really big stigma and it wasn't talked about. And I mean, even like my struggles with suicide and suicide ideation alone. Um, I remember being very young and being very passionate about how I was feeling. And um, I would try to explain very aggressively, like, I just do not want to fucking do this anymore. I, like, my life's honestly not bad. Like, there's so many other people out there who have it worse than me, right? Like, why am I sitting here literally trying to give God this soul back? And I just remember how stigmatized it was. And if you wanted help, um, you just, you went to a mental institution and they put you on medicine and you you ate candy from a vending machine and you didn't do anything in this mental facility besides whatever the guidelines for mental health were at the time. I never went to any of these facilities, but I had friends who would consistently be a rotating door through the mental health system where we were from. So I got a front row seat to what they would do. I had a friend who was in there. I was in seventh grade, I was in there, and he would call me from the hospital. It was some weird Joker Harley Quinn thing is kind of how I feel about it now. But he would just be like, yeah, I'm in here. Uh, I freaked out on my stepdad again, um, and I tried to self-harm, so now I'm in here for like a minimum of like two weeks or something or until my stuff's better. And I would be like, tell me what it's like. Like, walk me through your day. And I still remember being that young and just being so inquisitive about the way that they were handling this kid with mental health issues. I mean, yeah, he obviously had some teenage angst issues and some respect issues, but something else had happened to him in his younger years to make him really act out that way. And even from a young age, I knew it was, I thought it was weird that a lot of people were treated like criminals for mental health issues. So um, I'm sorry to hear that it is still supremely stigmatized over there just because I do think America is turning a lot of heads when it comes to self-help and mental health. But you also have like, you know, the new age spiritual takeover of buy some Lululemons and do some yoga and I promise love and light is all you'll find. And um, I find that really annoying because there is nothing super awesome love and lighting about finding out that your reality is bullshit and you're being controlled by people that you don't even know and you're yelling at the wrong people. So, you know. Uh, actually, uh, when you was discussing that, I, I, I generally never realized that, you was, that these hospitals still existed over there. Um, now, as soon as you were talking, I was just thinking, have you ever seen Ace Ventura? Ace Ventura. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, when, when he dresses up in that... Uh, the tutu? In the, in the tutu with yes. the American ball. And, um, my mind goes straight to that. And I was thinking, I thought that was fake. I, I, I thought those sort of places, is that real? Or is that just sort of... 
Yes. Top. So I, and I'm, they could have changed now, right? The facility I'm talking about is not in operation. I was in seventh grade. He went into the mental, the local mental institution, which would have been 30, 40 minutes away from our small town. Um, he was a minor, so his parents were allowed to sign him away. Um, he had to do like a minimum, a minimum amount of time for basically you sit in therapy and group therapy. You know, it literally is kind of like a movie, except for like in my mind, they put you on lithium and then ask you why you're fucking crazy. And it's like, well, because you just put me on lithium, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So all I, all I knew is if I ever got to a, a mental health point where I was like, oh, I think I might kill myself. I should go to the hospital and get some help. I never felt that way. I never felt safe enough to go and open up like that. And when things came to a head when I was about 19 or 20, I did find myself in a doctor's office and I had to like have a really fearful talk with myself where I was like, you have to, you have to tell the doctor the truth of what, what's been going on. You have to tell the doctor of what you've been doing, what you like, where you're at, like just, I just, I just said, fuck it. Tell them the truth, right? Like you don't tell anybody else the truth. Nobody can handle the truth. I was like, let's tell this guy that like legally has to keep his mouth shut. (laughs) Right. So I go to this doctor, super sweet guy. Um, and he's like, tell me when this started. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, like in your mind, he's like, tell me, tell me like when, like maybe the depressive episode started or something like that. And I was like, I said, well, did it happen when I was eight, when my dog died? Did it happen uh, 12 when I had to leave my first child at home? I was like, did it start when I was 15 when that boy told everybody in high school that I slept with them when I didn't, you know, I was still a virgin. I said, did it happen when I got my first boyfriend and he broke my heart? I said, or did it happen when I graduated high school and my fucking program ran out and I have no clue what I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to fit in? I was like, I just know that I think it would be really cool to die. And that is how I feel about it. I said, I don't want to sit in a bed and be depressed and cry all day because I don't. I'm actually one of the happiest people you'll meet. I'm like, I'm the friend that people call when they need something. I literally like lay down everything I'm doing in my life and put on my cape and go make sure all my friends and families and da 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 da, you know, like deflection, deflection, deflection. I was like, I'm coming to you today so you can tell me what what's going on with me. I was like, am I bipolar? Do I have schizophrenia? Am I really seeing dead people? Like just all of these things that I don't know how you can throw at a medical professional in 30 minutes and actually expect to get anything out of it. But I sat there and at the end of all this, this guy, he's, you know, writing everything down for his medical records and maybe for his like five o'clock talk with all the other doctors about their crazy people. And he's just like, he's like, well, here with mental health, he's like, especially trying to rewire your brain, you know, the way that it's supposed to be. He's like, it's kind of like a cat. He's like, it's not like cat and mouse. I can't even remember how he said he, 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 he used his hand like this and he's like, you got to kind of tinker with people's minds. He's like, so we'll try a medication. It's going to be about three weeks. 
get all your neurons lining up and everything. And then, you know, if that medication works, then maybe we'll up it a little bit. Um, I didn't have to go through therapy, which I thought was super weird. Everybody else I knew in order to get medication, you had to go see a licensed therapist. And I had explained, um, I'd done counseling when I was younger, but I'd never actually like sat down with a clinical therapist, so to speak. Um, so he gave me some like low grade antidepressants, um, like 10 milligrams of, I don't even know, maybe it could have been Lexapro or something at the time, like just super minimal. Right. And he's like, okay, like take, you know, take this, tell me how you feel, come back in three weeks. So I, I felt weird. I felt like one of those people that had just outsourced their mental capacity over to a pill. Um, this was like one of the worst fears that I'd ever had. Um, just cause I had also had a family member who, um, she'd struggled with depression so bad in her life that it was, it was noted that she needed this medication. She wasn't going to operate without it. Um, she had been medicated since like eighties, early nineties. So, I mean, like you don't take these people off this medication, right? So, I mean, just observing her journey alone, like I was like, I know that for my, like, I want to figure out what's going on with me because I don't want to take a pill and that be the reason that I don't dive down into the root of these issues. So, I'm sitting here at 19 years old, I'm getting ready to open up a nail salon, so I'm finishing up school for it, and I'm taking this pill that is against everything that I believe in, but I also feel like I don't have a choice because I'm, like, I'm breaking inside. And I'm telling people, and like nobody, like nobody knows how to help or do, they just know to go like send me back to the hospital. And I'm trying not to go to the hospital where they put you on more drugs and then ask you why you're crazy. You know, the one where they like tie you to the bed. Cause that's why I think I'm headed. Cause nobody, like nobody else knows what to do. So I go back three weeks later and I tell them I'm feeling like a little, like a little different. Like, yeah, maybe my anxiety is down or something, but, um, I still just feel like weird and um, weird to me is I'm still seeing dead people. Um, and I, and I'm coming from a, kind of a religious family part of it. So, I mean, basically they would probably tell you like, Oh, that's Satan trying to get to you. Like, let's just pray for you. Let's just pray a little harder. And like, let's just pray. So like I'm on the phone with my stepmom and she was on the phone with my aunt and I'm telling him about a child that's following me to my classroom and a guy that killed 12 people um, in a, in a meat packing plant from the nineties or eighties or something like that. And I know I don't make any sense, but I'm, I can only just play like Pictionary or something with my mind at this point. I'm like, this is what I'm seeing. Can someone please tell me what's going on? So I go back to the doctor and he says, um, I could up the pill that you already have. He said, or I could keep this one. He goes, and I'll just add another one. He goes, now keep in mind. He's like, this is kind of a trial run. He's like, it could be up to a year before we actually find medication that works for you. So that's, that's a lot of ups and downs with your brain. He's like, you're already going up and down. He's like, it's gonna, it's, He's like bracing, yeah, he's like, he's bracing me for the fact that I'm actually going to feel crazier, right? So before he gives me the pill, he says, just so you know, I've only, um, I've only given this to one other person and they actually did go crazy and wind up in the psych ward. So if you feel like killing yourself, like at all, right, just whew, at all, um, just come to the ER and we'll literally detox all the medicine out of you and, you know, you'll be taken care of. So 
you gave me a pill that makes me want to kill myself when I don't know why I want to kill myself. I do not have schizophrenia. I, I am not bipolar. I am not all of these things that I have like begged. I'm like, can you guys just like, before I tell everybody on the medium, can you just make sure I'm not fucking crazy? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty stunting. I, all I had to do is go back through my genealogy and my great, great grandma was actually, um, she used to see stuff too, but the church told her that it was Satan trying to get to her. So she shut it down, but she wrote about it in her diaries. And okay. it's just been, like, passed down. So there is sight in my family. Um, seeing dead people still freaks me out. I still have to work towards it kindly. But, like, I went through a whole hell of a mental health reign of some kind that, um, I mean, TikTok is a really good way to kind of see what the other part of the world is doing. And, um yeah, it kind of mortifies me that you would even say today, like, oh, I didn't know that places like that existed. I thought that was just a movie because that is that's 80s and 90s and 2000s mental health. And I don't know. I don't know how we're portraying ourselves that we're ahead of the game on mental health. I think it has a lot to do with the psilocybin movement and meditation and, you know, all of basically like India's medicine coming over to America once again to reclaim the peaceful stake but yeah yeah it's real gareth it's real they they will give you the most messed up messed up chemicals and then sit you in front of a therapist and ask you why why you can't communicate properly it's like yeah um so uh by the way i'm not a film buff but um have you ever seen this is us I think I have. Yeah, well, one of the characters ended up going for uh, therapy uh, and then ended up going for family therapy. And it portrayed a very good sight of, um, of the direction that America have gone. Now, when he was talking about the other one, and I was thinking, of, oh, is that Ace Ventura? And with this crazy person doing the reverse motion of the tackle that he once did to, to This Is Us, where mm-hmm. it's very real and it's very in tune and in touch with what they're saying. I think I think the, one of the reasons why I believe that America are going head above shoulders better than a superhero over the pond is, um, firstly, is because you've had these mental health asylums and you've got this research of hundreds of years old. We do have it as well, but I don't believe we've got as much hands-on as you do mm-hmm. over there. And um, the passion that you guys have of whatever that you do, uh, and whatever it is that you do do, you're very passionate about it. Now, we do have passion, but we're very inwards. Mm-hmm. We're, we're very stiff off upper lip and say, okay, I'm, I'm very passionate about this, but I'm going to tell myself how passionate I am about it. I'm not going to tell everybody else. Mm-hmm. Where... Um, I think over there, over, over where you are at the moment, having this mental health asylum um, for, for many generations, and just it's second nature to send someone there. Like, oh, what should we do? I don't know. Give them drugs. That sort of out. And where we are now with that different movement of awareness that mental health matters as such um, really does take the stigma away from it. So, you know, it's, it's not bad to, to go to a mental health asylum because let's rebrand that mm-hmm. let's have that as a as a safe space as a nice place to go where other people that have seen trauma 
um, can relate and have that same conversation and realize that I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. You don't need to tie me to a bed. You don't need to give me however much drugs or however milligrams this or however milligrams that. I'm happy just to talk it out. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, I'm not the biggest fan of talking therapy. I think it takes too long. But I really do like that inclusivity because one of the, um, one of the pillars of depression is isolation. And one of the best ways to overcome depression is to be less isolated. So I think use guys, whatever it was back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it's not anymore, it's now come to fruition. It's really taking a, a leap in the world. It's honestly like really cool to take care of yourself is what I've noticed from the marketing. And I know, especially, you know, COVID, everybody in their house, they're, and everybody had to switch up their marketing. Um, and those like online therapists, the app that you can download and pay them like 20 bucks a day or something like that, or however long. Um, I know that those systems just went through the roof. A lot of people, you know, had to face themselves in that time, which I mean, if there's anything good out of COVID, it's that a lot of people got a lot of introspection out of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all about branding here. You know, like you could, you could do anything you wanted with the right brand in America. That's what I've noticed looking through a lot of things. And it's really cool to take care of yourself. And I mean, I'm sure that that will lead us 10 times stronger, further in the future for a lot of mental health stuff. Cause I still know that there are stigmas out there and you know, people that kind of just feel about it the old way. I think that through the awareness and mental health is everyone is noticing um, that our society was built for just left brain. You know, our military was made for just the logical, masculine, no emotion. Um, All the workplaces were set up that way. And the more like awakening we have and the more where everybody's kind of wondering where the right brain is in society or fits into society, then I think we're all getting curious on maybe not like a spiritual or consciousness level, which I mean, that's definitely my level, but even just to keep it grounded on like, why don't I get to access both hemispheres of my brain at work? Why, why is the only left side of my hemisphere lit up for all of this? Like, where does the feminine fit in? Um, And I know, especially with you talking about like how very masculine you had to be in the rough area that you were like, you know, you hit first, you shoot first type stuff. Um, We are in a very over-masculated society, which is why we have females that are 10 times more alpha than, you know, what women used to be with the whole housewife role and all of that. Um, But it's the awareness, I think, is what's getting everybody. And they're wondering what, what is missing? Why was it designed this way? Like, I think all of us collectively are starting to ask the right questions, maybe not all at the right times. And I think that's why people like you um, obviously went through the last 20 years or so with your direct experiences. And now you've been able to bring us remaster your mind. Um, cause again, there's nothing out like that. And I think there's a reason that it exists now and not necessarily like, you know, let's have you be born in the seventies and try this. Like it probably wouldn't work at all. Right. Like talk about a stigma, but now, I mean, I know you're in the United Kingdom 
And I think that you'll find great success anywhere that anybody hears about you. Um, but this is visionary stuff. Like this is not only building it now, but it's futuristic. And I mean, I got your mental health journal in the mail today, literally the perfect timing. And I was telling you earlier, just flipping through it, this is formatted for my brain. I'm right brained. I lived my corporate life in my left hemisphere and I succeeded as somebody I was not. Um, so I'm very happy for that, but I'm also happy that there are creators out there like you that are making stuff for people like my brain. I know there's a whole like autism spectrum, neurodivergent community. I literally just know that I'm right-brained and I'm supposed to create and I have 20 years of creations that I shoved down. And I was like, no, I'm not supposed to create. I'm supposed to be a pencil pusher somewhere living somebody else's dream for them. I'm not special. And then, you know, turns out we all have a purpose. So I have a question for you. Okay. Well, actually, it's like three questions, and I hope they bleed into each other correctly. And if they don't, whatever. So, okay, I'm this. yes. <laughs> so if I am going to get hypnotized by you, um, can you explain to me, not necessarily like how you hypnotize me, but can you explain the separation of the subconscious and the conscious for me? It's perception. Mm -hmm. um, so if we look at the, if we look at what uh, the conscious is, and we look at what the subconscious is, we should treat them as two separate entities. Um, for example, your conscious mind is, it's everything that you do during the day that is made from a decision that you've made or someone's made against you. For example, um, if you pick up a pen, that's your conscious mind saying, I want to pick up this pen. If you, um, I don't know, when you wake up in the morning and say, right, I'm going to pop to the toilet. The first thing I'm going to do is go to the toilet. That's the decision. You can hold it and you can do whatever you want to do. That's your conscious mind saying, I want to do this. And that's what takes you through from getting up in the morning to go and sleep at night or attempting to go to sleep at night. The subconscious is... The emotions that see, uh, that um, that we feel and that go around us whilst we're doing these conscious things, we should always look at them as two very separate uh, identities. As, as, as I said a second ago, we need to identify that our conscious mind is a want, a need. I need to do this. I, I want to do that. Your subconscious mind is the what about this? What about that? Um, so when we identify the two differences. When we go into hypnosis, we work on different uh, wavelengths, the alpha waves, beta waves, uh, the, the gamma. Uh, so when you are, when you're sleeping, for example, and you dream, you, you, um, your, your eyes go into a REM, the, the rapid eye movement. And that's what I use. I identify that I, I can you use the REM before we get, get hypnotized. So I would use that as an introduction. When I'm, taught, when I'm hypnotizing someone, I want to know their root cause, the root problem, the reason why they're feeling suicidal, um, anxious, depressed. They're, they have these ideations or they're just feeling low. Their inner critic are being really nasty towards them and they've ignored their inner cheerleader. So why is that? And um, as, as just before we started uh, recording this, we, we spoke about um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, now, what I was saying to you there is, is how I like to explain it simply of, uh, of coping mechanisms that work and don't work. I, I know that I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but I'll see if I can 
squeeze myself back in. I'm still bit. right here with you, bud. Keep going. Brilliant. So when we look at riding a bike and we fall off that bike and we graze our knee, we, then there's blood all over the ship. Our subconscious is saying, um, don't do that again. Uh, don't, don't ride that bike. And what we need to do is just move forward. We need to avoid losing that bike altogether. That's not the root cause. The root cause is not even falling off the bike. The fact that you've got a graze in your knee and it's bleeding, that's not, the wound is not the root cause. They're just all symptoms of a root cause. They're, they're the main problem. And if we rewind back to when you're a three-year-old, four-year-old, your parents or guardians like, oh, okay, this is the best way to, to go on your bike, sit on here and they put the stabilizers on or the stabilizers off, whatever that, that looks. And you are taught how to ride that bike. Well, it might not be in the same terrain. It might not be on the same gradient. It might be. There's reasons and roots behind you learning to ride a bike when you're three to when you are when you're 25. And if you're doing different terrain, if you're doing different um, gradients, then there's a good chance you're going to fall off. Now, instead of focusing on the blood coming from your knee uh, or, or trying to, to, to bind the, the wound up, that's where we're looking with our, um, with our conscious mind. What I need to do is stop the bleeding. What I need to do is patch the blood. Okay, now they've patched blood, um, I've now either got a mark and avoid or not go cycling at all. When I go to, into hypnotherapy, I... I push away all the coping mechanisms of avoiding or whatever that is. The conscious mind saying, I don't want to do this, I'm going to run away from it. Uh, and I focus on the root cause. When was the first time you went on your bike? When, what feelings and emotions did you have surrounding you learning how to? Yes, you may have felt an accomplishment, but it might not have been the best way to ride the bike. And now if we look at that, um, again, a tangible riding the bike to an emotional when I was uh, eight years old, um, my siblings used to punish me because I, um, I acted different to them. And I acted differently by, I don't know, I'm, I'm making this up completely randomly. If um, I, I enjoy reading a book, and I'm going to read a book every single night. And then your siblings say, well, don't read a book. Books for nerds, books for geeks. What you need to do is go outside and play. And then you grow up and you, you avoid reading books, although you used to have that very uh, um, desire but now as an adult you are you, you, you're fearful of reading a book um, now again very different tangent I'm going on about but yeah should we um should we cancel that but I'll let a bit too no it's actually connecting really well because it reminded me of a therapy session that I was watching watching on YouTube or reading I can't remember and the lady said, um, go back to the moment before the world got you, before they got you, before your parents got you, your siblings programmed you. She's like, go back to that person. And I remember just doing that for myself. And I was like, okay, go back to Cheyenne before the world got me. And it would have been eight years old on my family farm. So like I'm immediately taken back to um, standing on the fence line of our farm, looking off into like a big field of wheat and then, you know, the guide at that point would have been like, tell me what you see, tell me how you feel, tell me what you smell. And okay. that's always what I go back to. That's what I'm picturing when you're... Brilliant. Okay, then I'll, I'll leave that in and then I'll carry on to the next bit. Yep. So if we, um, if we identify of the root cause of why we're anxious 
And if we look at this scenario, where you didn't realize it with your headspace where you are right now, but when you were eight, your siblings used to uh, insult you, they used to assault you, they used to hurt your feelings, or, and you had that learned belief to stop reading. And you had that learned belief that when you're around the siblings, you feel anxious because you're trying to do the things to please them rather than please yourself. And now as you are as an adult, you find yourself pleasing other people and never pleasing yourself. So when we go into hypnotherapy with a, with a specific reason, my problem is I'm anxious. My problem is I'm a people pleaser. My problem is whatever. You'll see that there's lots and lots of different results and symptoms of that one problem. As you say, that, what, that big problem that they're looking at is anxiety. I'm really anxious. Why am I really anxious? Well, underneath anxiety, there's people pleasing. There's, there's fear. There's, um, there's, there's worry that you're, you're not going to do the right thing at the right time. But as soon as you take away that anxiety problem, that bubble of anxiety, everything else will just weave away. It will just unweave the problems that you're facing. So a long way around the answer that what you're, you're saying is how can you identify the two, the, the conscious and the subconscious? is the fact that your conscious mind acts on, sorry, it reacts on everything that's happening, even though it's reacting from a time that you can't remember, where your subconscious will always remember back to that time. Stop me from reading, stop me from doing this. And I changed from there because I didn't want to be assaulted, insulted, or, or isolated, or whatever it is that they used to do. And what I want to do as an eight-year-old is be included. So I'm going to stop reading the book. And that's why I don't read books as an adult. So when someone comes to me, for example, a very, very made-up scenario, if someone says, ah, oh, why am I anxious? Well, it's because this, when you were that age, this is one scenario of when you were anxious, but you're no longer anxious. Well, sorry, you were anxious, but you're no longer um, wanting to be that person to read that book. You wanted to change. So you started learning life as an eight-year-old. Your eight-year-old started focusing. So you, the way you are in life now as a 25-year-old walking through the, you still have the mindset of that eight-year-old person that wants to people please, that wants to not be anxious, not to be um, included. You want to be included. You don't want to read that book because it's the wrong thing. What hypnotherapy does is has a direct conversation with the subconscious and says, hey, um, why do you feel the way that you're feeling? And then you sort of unbind it. You pull the veil up and say, hey, start thinking of a 25-year-old wise mind rather than the 8-year-old juvenile mind. And that's where we are in the world today. We're all walking around with learned beliefs. We're all working, walking around with the mindset, the, uh, the ideation that we should be doing stuff as we were taught by our parents, our siblings, our teachers. Or they, as you're saying, um, they're trying to pigeonhole me by making me work in an office somewhere. Well, that's come from a very young age. I don't want to work in that office, but I'm going to because that's what society's told me I need to do. Where, in fact, if you if you let you bloom, you can take on the world. Does that answer your question? Well, well done. I already know when I ask you a question, I'm going to get paragraphs back, and I want that. So... <laughs> On with my other two questions that I think should intertwine. Can you explain the difference in PTSD and CPTSD to me? Absolutely, I can. Um, but first of all, to understand what PTSD is, it's, um, it's all your emotions simultaneously reacting. 
it's also when you've got no control over your subconscious. And your subconscious takes over your body. Now let me explain that. If you are sitting in your house and you're reading a book, uh, I've got books in the brain, by the way. Um, so you sat down, you're reading your book, and um, your conscious mind says, I want to read this book because it's been, um, someone told me the other day to read it, and I've got my hands on it, and I'm really excited to read it. It's got nothing to do with nothing. It's a love novel. It's, it's neither here nor there. Your subconscious takes over. When your conscious mind is relaxed, your subconscious starts identifying other problems that's not there, or maybe there, but not half as um, detrimental as what it really is. If you're, PTSD is when you've lived through some trauma that has affected your life massively. What CPTSD is, is when you've lived through multiple traumas and you don't know which way is up. Now, for example, um, Generally, if you look at human trafficking or um, women that are sold as sex slaves, nearly always are diagnosed with CPTSD because it's multiple things in a prolonged time. Whereas PTSD is a singular event that's been traumatic. I'm not taking anything away from it. It's a singular event that has dramatically changed your life. CPTSD is multiple events that's prolonged time and you have no control over what's happening to you because your subconscious is reacting from everything. You're reading a passage in that book and your subconscious is saying, right, we're going to have um, the Taliban fight for the windows. We're going to have um, the tax man come in. We're going to have the police raid the house. He's like, what's going on? I'm doing nothing wrong. I've not broken the law, but I'm so petrified. My heart is racing at 200 beats per minute. Why am I feeling like this? PTSD is is trying is your subconscious trying to make sense by the way if you think about it um your conscious mind is very logical it's like okay if i pick up that pen i know basically the weight of it so i can judge that if i pick it up it's not going to be a heavy object and it's, it's nice it's very logical minded if i put pen to that bit of paper then it's going to write nicely your subconscious is emotional that holds no logic at all and if you put a war against logic and emotion Emotion is always going to win. PTSD is when emotion is taking over the logical side of your body. And you make no sense of what's going on. You're almost um, in, in a shadow of your former self. You have no idea. You're scared of everything. You're anxious. You're fearful. You're depressed. But at the same time, you're angry. You're regretful. You're guilty. And you want to fight the world. Or for, however it is, because everybody that has PTSD will have it differently to somebody else, regardless of who they are. Answer the question, or have I missed a bit out? Oh, no. Uh, per use, you answered it exactly the way that I wanted it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, and then I believe that there is a misconception on PTSD. Just so, like, I learned about military PTSD because of my siblings coming back from Iraq and us being educated on. These are things that you have to look for in your soldiers. They're not just going to come out and go, oh, hey, I have PTSD. Because um, most people don't even know that they have it. So me growing up, I, I honestly just believe that PTSD was something that you got from being in active military and going through all the traumas of being separated from your family and, you know, all the stuff that you go through in the military that the family really aren't there for. Um, obviously, growing up, you find like, okay, there's people who have been human trafficked and they're going to be 
under CPSD. But what about something like an abusive relationship or getting out of a traumatic marriage or something like that? Like, how do you break down who has PTSD? Okay. Um, it is a disorder from something very traumatic. Now, there are a number of different things that will highlight to a physician to see if they do or do not have PTSD. The two pillars of PTSD are, um, are anxiety and depression. There are many other uh, fallouts of PTSD, but those are the top two. Anxiety, which is the, the purest of fear. It's your most raw emotion of fear. And depression, you can break that down, as I said, to, to four different areas. The first one, as I stated earlier on, was uh, isolation. So you want to isolate yourself from the rest of the world. Now, your, con your subconscious generally, well, it specifically is there to protect you. Your subconscious says, I need to protect this vessel, the soul in this vessel. I want to look after it. Now, what I want to do is isolate it from all those nasty, horrible humans, which is a massive contradiction because we're social creatures. We need to have that society. We need to integrate to, um, to keep sanity. We don't need to, but it's a very strong point of being sane unless people generally want to isolate themselves for whatever reason, and that reason generally is something traumatic. So breaking those four pillars down, isolation being the one of them, the other one is uh, depression. What I mean by depression is suppression, when you're suppressing all of your emotions. So if you are saying, oh, do you know what, I'm feeling really bad today, I don't want to feel bad, so I'm going to push that emotion all the way down so I can't feel it anymore. But the problem is when you push a down, you're pushing all your emotions down, and that's joy, happiness, anger, hate, regret, all these different things, you're pushing them all down, you're literally becoming a robot, you're, you're just, you are just an empty shell that's going through the world, but then two emotions float back up to the surface, regret and anger, now anger is a secondary emotion, the first part of anger is hurt, or um, vulnerability, if you find yourself that you're vulnerable, you very quickly become angry on top of it as a, as a defense mechanism. So uh, depression, second part, these got these two. So you, uh, you, you find someone's overtaking you uh, and then they cut you off and um, you're very fearful of your own life. Like, oh my God, that guy's nearly killed me and my children and my partner. And oh my God, very, very instant. That very small feeling of vulnerability is then massively overshadowed by the anger that you've now got the road rage. So that's the second part of depression. The third part is wanting to have something that you're unable to achieve. So it may be your partner's died and you, you really want to be a part of them. You want to be with them again. But you can't. It's just unattainable. It's unachievable. Or it might be you might be a millionaire and you've got no money at all anymore. Whatever it is, whatever it is, tangible or intangible, if you want it and you can't get it, it's a very big pillar of depression. Um, now, the, the, last, um, the last point of what depression is, is the nasty, horrible things your inner critic is saying to you. And then you believe it. The worst things that you're saying to yourself, and truly, you look into the mirror and say, I don't want to look at myself anymore because I hate who I'm looking at because I am not enough. That's the last pillar. So if we're looking at the two pillars of um, of PTSD, the first one being anxiety, the purest form of fear, and the second one being depression with the four pillars. 
Then you have all the bits that fall out the other end of it. Maybe there could be um, negative triggers. Now, there's a difference between positive um, flashbacks and negative flashbacks. Uh, if, you, if you look for that journal that I wrote, um, I think I, I, I put it quite nicely to say that you could be walking past or you brush past a lady in a um, and you smell her perfume and go, oh my God, do you know, I love that perfume. It reminds me of when I was six years old and my grandmother had the exact same perfume and you can almost feel the sun on your shoulders uh, as you see as the smile on her face and you get really that tingling warm feeling. It's like, oh, this is amazing. I love that feeling. That's a positive flashback. A negative flashback is your time in the green zone or you being a, a, a human trafficked and something happens. Maybe you, you identify someone's watch. Say, oh, I recognize that watch. And then you flash back to a time where you saw that. You may not have any memory, just of the, the, the sheer fear or the anxiety from it. You're like looking at the watch going, oh my God, that's the same watch that this guy had. When I, when uh, Uncle Steve had that when I was eight and he done nasty, horrible things to me. That's a negative flashback. And you can almost smell um, his sweat. You can you just feel the dark emotions surrounding that specific time. Now, anything can bring you back. Anything. It could be, as I said, the smell. As soon as any of your senses go off, it can fire you straight back. And it's out of the blue. It's like this. You're like, Whoa, where, where did this come from? Where did and this can, come from? Yep. Yeah. And you're like, what? Why? How long is it going to last for? And then when you sort of come to and say, oh, do you know what? Um, uh, I, I remember one, um, one time I had blood all over my hands from, uh, from being in Iraq or Afghan. I can't remember which one right now, but I just remember looking at my hands saying, what the fuck? Uh, and then uh, a few years back, before I was going through my transition of getting my headspace, I, um, I was, I was doing, oh, um, I was cutting my dog's do, uh, claws um, and I nipped a little bit too much and a little bit of blood on my hands. There wasn't a lot of blood, just a little bit, but that took me right back to my, both my hands being covered in blood and looking up and, uh, and, and I was like, whoa, uh, I could, I could smell the air. I could feel the dust in my fingers. And it's just a horrible, that's a negative flashback. So there's a, there's like a whole range of different emotions that you're going to go through. Um, from, uh, you can't sleep at night where all you're doing is you're thinking logically or emotionally and thinking, oh my God, I, 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 tomorrow I need to sort that out and I need to do this because if I do that, I, I need to sort my car out because it needs to be going to the garage or I need to make sure that I'm seeing this person or that person at this time because if I don't, then that's going to be a problem. And uh, emotionally, you're thinking, oh my God, when I had a chat with um, uh, Steve the other day or Brian or David, they must think I'm a terrible person because I didn't say goodbye to them and I just left abruptly. Whatever it is, your, your emotions just taking over that thought process and you can't fall asleep. Or um, insomnia, you just can't sleep at all. There's lots of different symptoms to PTSD. Um, although, I'm just going to go on another little tangent, if you don't, if you don't mind. Um, as I said a second ago, your subconscious is there to protect you. To protect your soul, to protect your vessel, however you look, you look at this, it's there to protect you. And it will give you gifts. And those little gifts are symptoms. And if you put all those gifts together, people identify that as PTSD. I'll give you the gift of not sleeping. I'll give you the gift of anxiety. I'll give you the gift of stress. I'll give you the gift of all these different things. And you can't proceed. If you pull them out one by one and say, why? Why can't I not sleep? Why do I have anxiety? Why do I have depression? 
Why do I want to fight the world? And all these different things. You'll realize step by step that your subconscious is saying the best thing, the best thing I can do for you, because it doesn't think of logic, it thinks of emotion, is if I give you anxiety, then you're not going to leave the house. If I give you depression, then that means you're going to be isolated and you're not going to meet those people that you've met before. If I uh, make you really tired, then you're going to be too tired to get to work, so you might as well quit. If I say nasty, horrible things about yourself, you're never going to push your own boundaries. You're never going to push yourself to the next level. But it doesn't understand that all these things that it's giving you as gifts are actually hindering you on a massive scale. And that's where hypnotherapy comes in, for me to have that conversation with the subconscious and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Thank you very much for giving me anxiety because, you know what, back then it worked. It helped me from that problem that I was faced with. But this is 10 years later. I've lived past that and I want to move past that. I want to broaden my horizon, but I can't because you're still giving me the gift to get over that event that happened 10 years ago. So um, does that answer the question of uh, <laughs> what you're asking for? Yes, uh, it definitely also, does. <laughs> it I, does. Uh, does anything need to clear that at all? Uh, I do apologize for going on a tangent. No, I love your tangents. They're called tree branches on my show, Gareth. They're never oh, tangents. <laughs> and there's... There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of depth to all of your answers, so that's why I try not to interrupt because I know you're like basically channeling a script. I don't want to interrupt, but um, <laughs> no, you really cleared up a lot of things. Even for me, like just personal, when we were talking, you're like, um, I think there is a misconception on who can get PTSD and what it even is. And I mean, especially over here, again, the first time I learned about it was military PTSD. So that's, yeah. that's as far as, like, my knowledge went with it. Um, I've looked more into it just after, you know, doing my own healing and all of that fun stuff. I, I have found I've never been uh, diagnosed, but I definitely think that if I went and talked to somebody, they would be like, yes, you have a percentage. <laughs> that's probably why you act the way you do. Um, but I do think it's really important to pull all those terms apart. Um, just because they all do kind of get blended together easily. Um, the next thing that I want to talk to you about is your mental health journal. Like I said, it came in the mail today. So, um, I just wanted you to talk about what inspired you to write this. Um, like I said, I'm actually going to, um, do it on and off on my TikTok just to keep myself accountable on it, but it is something that I look forward to adding yeah. into my healing regiment. But since I have the author <laughs> right in front of me, I think it would be super stupid to not talk about your inspiration for making this mental health journey. Journal. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So um, that, that journal has been taking me the best part two years to write. And it's only been about three weeks ago since I had it published. Um, so when I was in the, in the army, uh, I was a very sharp edge to a very pointy stick. Um, and when I transferred over to the army welfare service to help, um, soldiers and their dependents, uh, where I could say, do you know what, I've been there and I've done that and I, I can help you because I can, I, I can empathize and I can, I can see the, the path that you've taken. Um, I, uh, I took on board everything that was being said and I learned a lot, but I, didn't truly learn how it was fixing me. Now, I was, I've said it earlier on, I'm not a big fan of talking therapy, but I was a talking therapist in the army. And um, I, 
I was helping people with their own dealings and I was giving them um, coping mechanisms to, to get over it. Over a long period of time or a short period of time, everybody's different. Um, when it comes to leave the army, I, I left the army with having been diagnosed with PTSD. And I, I felt like a, a, a rabbit in the headlights. I was a bit lost. I was like, how, how do I push past this? I've, I've got this diagnosis of PTSD. Now I'm reading of what it means, but that's not, that's not a true reflection of what it is for me. Um, so I, I took all my learning and I took all my awareness of how other people have reacted from the way I've been helping them. Um, and it was my wife, uh, Donna, that, um, that says to me when I, after I left, like, why don't you put all your stuff together and create your own company? And then she put me in alignment or, or, or awareness of RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy. And that's, if you used to tell me back then, RTT or hypnotherapy in the mindset I was, I would have just laughed at you. Um, I was in a very different headspace where I am now. I knew that I wanted to help people, but hypnotherapy was so unmasculine and it was so out of my 45s, out of my awareness, that um, I would have brushed it off until I saw firsthand what it was. And then I, um, I was able to use my, my teachings from the army, uh, from being in, the, uh, in, the, in Afghan and Iraq, and once in Iran, um, that was an accident. Luckily, uh, nothing come of that. Anyway, we got into, um, uh, I, I learned a lot about helping people, even if it's just going to the, to the bar and having a pint with them and saying, hey, come on, let's, let's, um, you had a problem with me and I've got a problem with you. Let's have this fight. Let's get it over and done with. And then let's have another pint and then uh, see where the night takes us, usually fighting somebody else. Um, that was called coping mechanism. It was brilliant. Uh, and it worked. And it got you through the problems. And I'm still with this very mindset. I've now left the army and I've not got that camaraderie anymore. I've not got that um, live, raw. I've got, I've got the raw emotions, but there's nothing to bounce it off. Um, and then I've got all my teachings. And on top of that, I've got an awareness of what RTT or Rapid Transformational Therapy is. And I've amalgamated it all into this business of Remaster Your Mind. And I was having two different types of clients. The first client was a standard client that comes to me with uh, anxiety or, or um, sleep problems, just very isolated uh, problems. Um, I was doing my natural thing with them when it comes to um, hypnotherapy. But I also have my VIPs, which is my PTSD reserved clients uh, and I'll be working with them one-to-one -one, which is over a period of three months so people was walking through the door and saying hey Gareth I've got a really big problem I can't uh, every time I go into public I, I cry I fall on the floor or I go into hospitals and I just be begging people to help me and I don't know what's going on and at the end of the three months they'll be walking out the door singing dancing uh, wi-fi high-fiving me it would be great outcomes that I was seeing and I started picking apart that. I was like, why? Why do they come and see me um, on day one and three months down the line, they're walking out the door a completely different person? And I realised it was the care packages that I was sending out. It's not only the care packages, but they massively helped. And in and amongst, or, or um, threaded in amongst the other care packages was the actual hypnotherapy that I've been doing and the coaching sessions in between the hypnotherapy that I've been doing. And the amalgamation of the three of them was really, really helping. Now, in my care package, I would have um, a 
a journal, just a standard journal that says, right, what happened during the day? Uh, I'd also have a, uh, a, a, a life cycle where you just highlight areas within your life how, out of 10, um, zero being terrible, 10 being amazing. Okay, finances, how is that? How is that imp impacting on your, on your day? Or um, how is your sleep impacting on your day? And this the cycle you'd, uh, my, my clients would just sort of take it off and, and see where they are. And then when we'd have a coaching session, they'd feed that information back to me. Um, there was also lots of information that I'd be given to them, like, for example, if they're having a, pan a panic attack, what is a panic attack? How do you postpone it? How do you stop it? How do you control it? And so I was given all this information in my, um, my care packages that I was sending out. And I just uh, had the idea one day. Uh, I thought, you know, how can I reach to help more people without being there? Because I, I want to help as much people as I can. If, I have, if, if no one knows who I am at all, I don't care. But if everybody has a journal that they've been given by somebody else, then that's what I want. I want that person to be in a better headspace regardless where they got this information from. Now, if there's someone that's doing this exact same thing that I'm doing, you know, well done them. High five to you because you're helping the people that need it most. So I kind of created this, my mental health journal, out of my, um, my care package that I was sending clients, uh, the advice that I'd give them, uh, and the, the journey that they would take. Um, so, again, uh, Hopefully that's answered the question. If not, I'll happily explain a little bit more on the different... Uh, no, I just wanted to know how you came up with the journal idea. And, I mean, everything you say is great, but the last, like, minute and 30 seconds is, I think, exactly what I was looking for. Especially um, looking over your website, I, I know that you want to be the global face of PTSD as far as helping people. And... Um, the humility you have with obviously publishing this and then being like, I don't care if you know who Gareth is, but I'm telling you from direct experience, that journal, it's going to help you. And I think yeah. it'll help. My favorite thing about like books and journals like this, especially you get to go at your own pace. Um, nobody has to know that you have this journal, especially for like people in the military that, you know, are still really clinging to that stubbornly masculine, it's okay to not feel anything aspect of their personality. I think it's great to just have and work through it by yourself. Um, I mean, obviously I'll be telling everybody because that's my job is to tell everybody about all the things I love to work with. Um, but I mean, I want to highlight it just because people don't have to know that you are working on yourself if you're one of those people that stigmatize yourself and you don't want people to know that you're you're seeking help or anything. Um, yeah. I don't mind that people know I seek help all day long. Um, but what you have created here is perfect for whether you're left or right-brained. And I wanted to point that out Um because I've never, I have like a five-year journal, but it is not a mental health journal. It's just a fun journal that you write different things in every day. So then like five years from now, you can remember what you ate three years ago for fun. Um, this definitely has a lot more depth to it. But at the same time, it still has that playfulness feel, if that makes sense. I'm not taking everything so serious. 
And I really enjoy that the person that wrote it has direct experience with everything that you're teaching and talking about. I think that adds 10 times more credibility than it could ever be from someone who like just went to school and got a degree. No offense to anybody out there like that. I certainly just jam better with the people who have actually walked in the fire. Right, okay. Okay. Um, so what you'll find, everything in your life is a reaction. Absolutely everything in your life is a reaction. The, the, the very fact that you were born is a reaction from your biological parents or the test tube, whatever it is, making the decision for you to react, for the cells to react. Where you are right now is a reaction. The, the, um, when you were three years old, you have reacted in order to make it fight, flight, freeze, fall, and flop. Everything from school, not wanting to do something, is a reaction from something else. Your life is just a course of reactions. Now, many people are reacting from something negative. Many people react from something positive. If you can find the positive in any scenario, that's a great thing. But so many people get caught up, get stuck uh, in the past, which they've reacted to. And as I said before, whatever it is that they've, uh, however it is that they've reacted from that same thing, that they may or not remember even today, they're still reacting the same way. If we can go and look at our childhood, if we can go back and rethink our experiences as an adult, that's where we are as children, to move forward, to progress forward and remaster our minds as such. Excuse the pun. I thought the pun was perfect. Just as my, um, my phone's talking to me. That's okay. And I think that's a great add-on because you're absolutely right. We have a lot of adults walking around that just think because they just celebrated their 47th birthday that they're actually mentally operating at 47 years old. So I think it, it's a constant reminder that we all need to audit and check in with ourselves and ask where we're actually operating from or why did we do that thing that we did that we know we didn't want to do. Yeah. For example, our parents... Our parents wanted the best of us. I believe well, not every parent wants the best of us. The good parents, you know. The, the good parents want gonna... the best of us. Yes. Unfortunately, from their own mishaps as they were children, from their reactions, they've got a different perspective of life of what we would want. Mm -hmm. Now, most of our parents, I say all of our parents, and there's no such thing as a perfect parent. As much as I'd like them to be, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. They will do something wrong. Uh, and what they, you can find is that our parents will give us injunctions. They will stop us from doing something that um, we believe we want to do or need to do. Let me explain a little bit more. If, um, if you're saying, when you was a kid, I, I love climbing trees, and your parents say, oh, you climb that tree, you're going to fall out and you're going to hurt yourself. You're like, well, I better not climb trees. Or you're going to give yourself that barrier. And these injunctions create barriers to us. Even though our parents may or may not want to hinder us, we are hindered by um, those people around us. That's a very valid point. I can think of, um, man, how many times when I was a kid that my parents' voice would pop up in my head as like, you know, my conscience or like the Jiminy, but they would also yeah. pop up as like the fear voice. 
and like, oh, you don't do that, you don't do that, you don't do that. And it took me until my late 20s to actually identify the voices in my head actually weren't my own. Yeah. And well, I mean, my parents probably like would not believe that. They're like, you never listen to us, so I don't know how we got stuck on record in your head. But yeah, like I had to like meditate it out where I was like, I'm the voice in my head. Like I am asserting the mastery of my real self. And then I will say it over and over. And now like, yeah, I hear, I mean, besides like all the clear senses, we don't have to get into that just to keep it like grounded. Um, I have a very good uh, relationship with my higher self or in clinical psychology, it's called future self. Um, so, I mean, really just doing the things day to day to help your future self. Um, I have a lot of fun stories where I have either written to my future self or written to my past self. However, I've done that. Um, and I didn't know that those were actually really cool therapeutic modalities that people teach um, others to connect with themselves. And I had actually been doing, doing it since I was a kid especially uh, writing to my future self. That was a really big one for me. And then um, I would make it to that future date and then I would read it and I would just be like, oh, thank you so much, Cheyenne from two years ago for writing this to me. Like we did it. We did everything we said we were gonna do. And then I'll like sit there that day and I'll write to you know whatever future person I'm connecting with that day. But it is really powerful and it, it does go to say that like the woke parenting movement um, that is going on where everybody just wants to like bash their parents for not being some 100% example of a parent and now they're struggling with being a parent. That's not the way that I would sell it. Um, my parents were not educated on being emotionally unavailable nor was anybody in our society at the time and mental health was a complete stigma of, you know, left brain, left brain society. If you have emotions, you're weak. Um, so, to say that like our parents were emotionally were emotionally unavailable would be correct, but to use it in a derogatory statement where it is their fault is incorrect. So I always try to like pad lightly on that because my parents never did anything with like horrible intention towards me. Um, I also believe in like soul contracts and life contracts and life lessons. So, you know, if my parents were supposed to give me some tough lessons that I didn't really feel a child needed to get from a parent, um, I chalk it up to that's a life lesson for my soul growth. And um, I can analyze the emotion of it to heal and make sure it's not stored in my body and I'm subconsciously reacting in my day-to-day -day life. But um, through a lot of just self-introspection like you've done in studying, um, we really all here just to learn. Um, I, I feel sorry for the people that don't want to learn the lessons and want to continue to live in a victim mindset. Um, I'm not a therapist or a doctor or anything like that. I have people that just come to me for very private conversations, sometimes energy work and, you know, whatever divination tool you're comfortable with. Um, but I've backed away from wanting to be so vocal about it when I read something that said, um, before you heal someone, you should ask them if they want to be, if they want to stop, like, what's making them sick. And um, I find a lot of people will, they want the cure and they would still like to put the poison in the cabinet. And um, that's really tough when all you want is for people to just grow and be better and the best version of themselves and 
you know, like you said, like I'm a fan of watching people have epiphanies and transformational life moments, their aha moments. And I get it. And I get to, I get to pull myself out of my own pit now. Those are my favorite things in life. Um, and luckily I, I get a lot of people that they would still like to stay addicted to their drug of choice or whatever. And then they still enjoy the euphoria of the awareness you know, so I think there's a lot of compassion that goes into what you do. Um, and if I can ever find a label for what I do, I will send you a business card. I promise. <laughs> I'll definitely look you up. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I don't know if I rehearse this one or not. It's just one more question I have before we can say our goodbyes. But, um, do you have any advice for either like after tips of leaving the military or even how you would go about asking for help? Like what if I go to the VA and their PTSD stuff just really isn't my thing and I haven't found you yet? Like what would be what would be something you would say to them? I know it's tough. It, it is tough. Um, yeah, I know there's not like one answer. No, but one of the big things in the military is camaraderie. So I would absolutely 100% say, regardless of how big of a hole you're sat in, tell someone about it. Tell the guys that's, that were in the military with you, because there's a very good chance that they're in their own hole, and at least you can share the hole. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if we're looking at depression, I think once again, the four pillars of depression, because when you, the, the military is a way of life. And once you change that way of life, when you, know, you no longer have the, the orders, you no longer have the exercises, the tours, the, the weaponry, the, uh, you, you, you don't have that way of life anymore. And that could be seen as, um, as one of the pillars of, of depression, having something you no longer got, unachievable. But if we focus on the isolation part, that's the two of them. If you're isolated, one of the pillars, having something you're un- unable to achieve anymore, that's another pillar. And you're going to be saying nasty, horrible things about yourself. That's the third pillar. And naturally, as soldiers are, they're very stoic and they push all their emotions down. I'm, well, I'm not saying every soldier is going to be depressed. Mm-hmm. But there's a good chance if you're leaving the military without any goals, without any plans, then you could find yourself in a very slippery slope. So what I would say is set yourself goals every single day. This, the smallest of goals. It could be, today I want to... Uh, have a shower. It could be today I want to um, apply for a job. I want to set up my own company. I want to learn something new. I want to um, I want to say hello to the closest person to me, even if that's the cashier, even if it's the, the barman. I want to communicate with someone. It doesn't matter. Reach out to someone, preferably old friends. Never lose your friends. They're there, they may, you may have forgotten about them for a short period of time, but bring them back into your life. Because otherwise, there may not be um, a space for them anymore. Now, so I'd say reach out to your old friends because they've been through the same shit you've been through. They, they've eaten the same crap that you've had to eat. So they're going to know it. They're going to get it They're gonna because they've experienced it. Number two, set yourself goals. doesn't matter how small they are. Make sure as long as they're achievable. I'm not trying to say set the world on fire. I'm not saying to build Rome in a day. Just have goals. And give yourself positive affirmations because if you set yourself positive affirmations, 
and you can listen to yourself and you can bring that inner cheerleader out and you can be the best version of yourself. The military has shown you, has taught you so many life skills. The whole world look at you with awe. They're like, oh, wow, you're, you're amazing because you've done all this stuff. Regardless of what that is, you've learned a lot. Maybe it be leadership skills. Maybe it be um, uh, tactics. You can apply those into the civilian world so, so much. And you've got so much prospect to be a, an amazing person. You just need to tell yourself the truth that you are a good person. You have learned, and if you are or not a good person, but you have learned many, many skills, life lessons that everybody else wants to learn. You're disciplined. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it through the army if you weren't disciplined. You are aware, and you need to give yourself these positive affirmations. You need to give yourself these, these goals. Um, so those are the three things, positive affirmations, goals, and uh, reach out. Maybe to be a professional, maybe to be an old comrade, maybe to be Steve down the road that's just opened his own bar. At least if you're having a pint, then you can have a bit of therapy. That's perfect advice. Absolutely perfect. I was going to add in affirmations, but you said it, so <laughs> my advice is out. And that's just retraining the brain, which I know you understand that 100%, which when we were um, doing our own manager training um, for a much lighter job than what you were doing, it was 21 times to form a habit. So you had to do it like 21 times to really lock it in. And then when I understood, you know, basically just... Well, like negative, you know, there's a lot of density and like negative pathways anyways. So it, um, you have to see like three positive things in the beginning. Um, and when I actually put that into everyday action, um, it was I kind of like giggled how I was like, it's extremely hard to be positive right now. And I have lived years just operating at this level and not, I mean, yeah, like silencing that inner critic is one thing, but even just like being jealous or envious or judgmental of like everything around you oh I can't believe she wore that oh can't believe this you know just like I look at the world completely different now where I'm like oh that's really pretty they put that flower display there oh I like that painting whoever painted that house that color that's really cool oh the sky looks pretty I wonder what that tree is like I I don't fit in because I really do stop and smell the roses that's what I got from my transformational healing. Like, and the work's not done. I tell everybody, I'm like, I know I'm 31 years old. I was like, but I, I'm only four years old. Like I just woke up four years ago and just started unpacking all of the stuff from my life that I thought that I got to run away from. Um, so I'm probably going to say some weird stuff sometimes because <laughs> I'm like, at least I'm being honest. And I mean, I struggle now more in public um, than I did in my younger years just because I'm 10 times more honest and like, like I can't deal with people's facades and masks and bullshit. Like I don't want to have like surface level conversations half the time. So um, I'm very blessed with a charismatic husband who can talk normally and about like stuff. You know, I'm, I just like nod and, mm -hmm. and then they're like, what do you do for a living? And my husband's like, and we're going to lose them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gareth, I really appreciate you coming on. And I mean, if you ever feel like coming on and even like teaching an info episode, I would be totally interested in having you on again. 
and just educating us more on um, your program and the way that you want to help people. Yeah, thank you very much. Do you know what? I'd like to just leave um, this, this. If you are having problems sleeping, do you mind earlier on I was talking about the logic and, uh, mm -hmm. and emotion? Uh, on my website, I've got a free um, deep relaxation recording. And it's used from something from both the nice Templar use uh, of the divine holy frequency of 111 hertz and my voice to I'm very hopefully calming for you where you can bring the logic and emotion together where you can just fall asleep naturally it's very very powerful I wouldn't recommend um, driving and listening to the recording so if you do have problems with sleep and you don't even want to look who I look at who I am just just jump in just grab it if you take nothing away from this if you have a problem sleep or if you know someone that can sleep then um then just go and grab it and if you want it on your phone if you've got whatsapp send me um, an email and i'll happily whatsapp over to you to send me your phone number of course and i'll fire over to you and you can listen to it when you go to bed well that's wonderful because i used it the day that you sent it to me and i even put it out on your post today um because i'm a big fan of telling people stuff that works for me and um, yes, I felt like going right to sleep when I got it on. I thought your voice was very soothing. And I am all about anything divine 111. So when you said 111 hertz frequency, I was like, oh, baby, <laughs> you are speaking my language. So um, again, I appreciate you putting that out there. I'll definitely have it under your episode notes too, so people can grab it up faster. But like I said, if you need someone to do it for you, um, I already did, and I highly recommend Gareth's meditation. Thank you very much. I look so forward to having you on the show more. And, um, yeah, if you want to keep up with my mental health journey on TikTok, feel free, because I'll be telling everybody about your book. Um, I'm pretty sure I already told you this, but one of my favorite things about the show is music, or about me is music, and how I get to bring music to my friends and be like, hey, go check this song out. Um, I just recently went to the Midland Theater in Kansas City, Missouri with my concert family, and we got to watch Goose, which is one of, I think it probably is like my favorite band now. I can stop saying one of, um, but I'm pretty obsessed with them in like the nicest way you could be. I don't like over fangirl any situation. I'm just like, I'm so proud of you. Keep playing music. You're doing so good. I'm, oh, I'm so proud of you. Um, so they're really doing it big, and I brought uh, one of my favorite songs they performed. It's called Born, and he's got a really sweet guitar solo. I hope you can hear it on your end, Gareth. If not, I guess you can hear it when the episode comes out on Spotify. But uh, to my friends that are still with us, this is Born from Goose, live from the Midland Theater. I really hope you enjoy this guitar solo. It's mm. Have a good day, everybody.